I always say this to everyone, you know, just because you're busy doesn't mean you're productive. And just because you're productive doesn't mean you're effective. And really having that as a framework for everything I do now has helped me understand the impact I can have and what impact others can have that, that work with me or under me or above me even, but just really understanding, you know, commander's intent. What is your vision? What are you trying to do? Do we have the resources? Are you being you know, guided in the right direction? Welcome to Screw It, Just Do It, the number one ranked entrepreneurship podcast for business owners, entrepreneurs, and those aspiring to be so. The aim of this show is to showcase the world's most inspiring and interesting people who've decided to screw it, just do it. We offer 20% inspiration and 80% education, giving you the tools and advice to start, grow, and scale a successful business. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, fellow entrepreneur, podcast agency owner with a number one podcast, and startup advisor to global startup generator and early stage VC, Antler. Each week, I release two episodes, a Q&A every Wednesday with one of the world's most inspiring figures, plus a solo episode every Saturday where I cover the challenges that all of us are facing as entrepreneurs. I am super excited to announce that this podcast is brought to you by Wholesome Smart Food, complete, sustainable, plant-based food, shaking up your nutrition and improving your gut health, recovery, immunity, and energy. Go to wholesome.com and enter the code wholesup 15 to save 15% on your order. That's wholesup 15 all capitals, 1-5, to save 15% on your order. Welcome to another episode of Screw It, Just Do It with me, Alex, and my very special guest today, Randall Crowder. So Randall is the COO of Funware, a tech company in Austin, Texas, developing mobile and data solutions for major brands and launching a cryptocurrency called FunCoin. Now, prior to Funware, Randall has led over 40 angel investments and deployed over $60 million across 14 companies as a venture capitalist. But before getting involved in venture and entrepreneurship, Randall was a captain in the U.S. Army and served over six years active duty and was deployed twice in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom, where he was twice awarded two bronze stars. For his actions during combat operations. So firstly, welcome. And secondly, thank you for your service. Uh, thank you, Alex. You know, we were just talking about before we started this, you know, a dear friend that we kind of share just told me I'd love talking to you and love sitting down with you and just being able to talk with you five, 10 minutes before this. You know, I appreciate everything you're doing with Screw It, Just Do It. You know, these kind of podcasts, I think, are the future. And just, you know, what the people you're able to bring on and the content you're able to share and the education you're able to push, I think is invaluable. So I'm humbled to be here and uh, I appreciate you letting me kind of squeak my way on here. <laughs> Amazing. Now, I appreciate your time and the time zone as well, jumping on. So I'm interested to know the transition that you went through. You've obviously lived a couple of lives within one lifetime thus far, Randall, for, you know, from the military to, to entrepreneurship, because my podcast agency launched a show for a company called X-Forces Enterprise in the UK, a not-for-profit that helps military personnel transition to civilian life through launching their own businesses. So they provide funding, they provide mentoring, they provide workshops, et cetera. So I'd love to know, you know, how did you find it 
initially that transition and how did that progress into you know the business life that you've now evolved i love that i, lo- I love what you were doing because i think it's, it's funny i was literally just on a, a podcast with a veteran and you know, kind of a, you know there's this struggle i think that we see in america that maybe you know at least i always hold up israel as such a shining example startup nation great book talking about the role entrepreneurship and it's one of those books that talks about the role service played in israel and what role that service had in not just their country but their entrepreneurial ecosystem which i think in america is totally disjointed i think people come out of the military in america and they have no idea what to do a lot of times you know, they think, well, I've been a door kicker, a trigger puller, I've driven a tank, I've done all these amazing things that I can tell my parents about, but what's the workforce going to think of me? And what is a boss going to think of me? And I think we really, as a country, and it sounds like, you know, even in the UK, y'all are doing it, helping them understand how that service directly translates in the value add that that can have in their career and in the private sector is a huge kind of, you know, passion project of mine. I've been working with different groups to do this. And like, how do you sell yourself? And from just thinking asymmetrically to dealing with just hardship, overcoming weaknesses, understanding, you know, organization development, team mentality, have a vision and execute through the tactics to reach that strategy. There's so many things that I think they just take for granted. And so they get out of the military here and they think, well, I guess I'll be a security contractor and just do what I know, or maybe I'll go work in supply chain logistics. And it's like, no, you can do anything you want. You know, I'll put a service member up against a Harvard grad. You know, there's, it's just different perspectives, different lives and their capacity to learn, to innovate and to operate in just kind of incredible situations is something that should be celebrated that should never be humbled or disclaimed whenever they get out. And so thank you for working with groups in the UK to kind of help that transition because I think it's so important. Well, it was also, you know, super interesting doing that because you have people from such different backgrounds and they came from, you know, the army, from the Navy, from the Air Force. And people had done, you know, been through unbelievable experiences in their life, you know, dealing with, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, seeing things happen to really close friends that you would never want anybody to see. And then to try and just literally go straight into civilian life and the bosses, their work colleagues, you know, not knowing that different experience level that they've been through, getting them to really be whomever they wanted to be, as you said, by starting a business. And as you all know, starting a business, you're able to put your own personality, your own stamp, be able to tell your own story. So for me, those were kind of like some of the biggest takeaways from that. I can imagine, you know, you could probably, I can see you nodding, you can like empathize with that as well, that you've been able to do that yourself. You know, I think the bit, and you probably dealt with this, you know, throughout your career, you know, I think the challenge that a lot of people face, I heard a quote a long time ago, and I'll probably ruin it, but it, it goes something to the effect that, you know, it's not about the pursuit of happiness. It's about the happiness of pursuit. And it's always stuck with me because it is. I mean, and you've heard other variations of that. It's the journey, yeah. not the destination. Yeah. But it's so true, but it's all allegorical until you face it. You know, you know, it's until you have and life will do it until you have just tragedy, failure and all these things happen where you really think, you know, why is this happening to me? You know, it's not just happening to you. It's happening to everybody. And you're building scars and you're really understanding, you know, what you're capable of doing. Sometimes it's actually physical, like in the military, sometimes it's mental. And that ability to overcome will give you a confidence for the next task. 
and the next thing and the ability to understand i jokingly you'll hear me say it on a lot of different interviews i say you know, somebody goes well man the market's terrible i'm like yeah but no one's shooting at me you know once that's your comparison other facing death with your friends everything else is easy and so you know not everybody i hope most people don't ever have that as their comparison other but they have something you know you really wanted to win something you really wanted to get something you really wanted to do something and you work so hard and it doesn't work out the way you thought or maybe something happened is just quite frankly unfair you know you see it in business all the time you know whether yeah. it's lawsuits or just you know partnerships breaking up friendships breaking up and it just feels like, God, why is this happening to me? And it, and it always rains, it pours. And I think once you do that, if you can weather it and you can maintain you know, your sense of heart and your character and morals and integrity along the way and see what those lessons were to be learned, you become unstoppable. You become unbeatable because you know that's what they always talk about with entrepreneurship. It's not that you're some great mind or you've come up with some great thing that no one else came up with. It's usually you just persevered longer than other people did. You know, you didn't quit. And I think that's what service, especially in the military, teaches you is, you know, the power of a team and never quit. Interesting. And I think a lot of those lessons clearly be applied in life as well. And interested to know, you strike me as that glass is half full person, not the half empty. But did that come from the military or did you have that from your upbringing, do you think? I'm going to say it's my upbringing. And again, maybe I'm just, you know, it's a shameless plug for my parents who I think are just two amazingly <laughs> wonderful people. It's interesting. Um, there's a, I won't name them on here, but there's a, there's a famous kind of, you know, influencer you know, who has a child and he talks about, you know, abundance and he talks about, you know, trying to raise his daughter with the idea of abundance. And what does that mean? And I think my parents did the same thing with me. Like there was nothing that I couldn't try. There was nothing I couldn't do. There was nothing, you know, that I couldn't achieve, but they didn't give me guardrails to it either. You know, I didn't have a curfew, but I was always home before midnight. You know, they didn't tell me what to do, but I kind of always did the right thing. It was an interesting, you know, I just found out, so I got married about a week and a half ago. And about a week before that, I found out I was having my first kid. So I'm trying to learn all these lessons now on, you know, what does it mean to be a good parent? And I'm really looking at my parents and thinking, okay, you know, what did they do that I think was so exceptional that helped me become the man I am today? And, you know, it really is that idea of you resource the people you love, you give them confidence and esteem, but you don't try to control them. You don't try to turn them into you. You don't try to, you know, scare them away from exploring or failing. And I see that a lot in leadership roles, whether it was in the army or now in the private sector, you know, another really one of my favorite people who was a mentor for me early on was a gentleman named uh, Admiral Bobby Inman, and he was former you know, deputy director of the CIA, early investor in Dell and Oracle. He's down here in Austin and started a venture fund. It's kind of where I first cut my teeth and angel investing in venture was with him. And he always got on me because I always try to do everything. And he's like, you're doing too much. And I was like, well, you know, I'm trying to learn and I want to do too much. He's like, yeah, but one of the things you're going to struggle with as you get older is understanding how to delegate. And then how does that correlate to scale? Because the hardest thing for someone who's type A and or perfectionist and or workaholic is going to be understanding that you may be able to do a task and get an A. And somebody else might try that same task and get a B minus, but it's actually worth it to let that person get a B minus so that you can focus on something else where you can get an A plus. Mm. And it's like, oh, I know you're right. But it's yeah. so hard. And so, you know, understanding how you can delegate resource and support, but then be okay when they do it maybe different than you. 
maybe not as good as you, but that's okay. And I think my parents let me grow on my own with love and support and esteem. I thank the world for it. That's amazing. And it reminds me when I was at Virgin Atlantic, which you know was like the second job I did after uni, I went to join the BBC as a journalist, presenter, and then wanted to travel the world for free, join Virgin Atlantic. But, you know, every week we would have a different boss, essentially, you know, different team leader. And you just see and learn that way on how they did things. And it was those who would, what's that phrase again? You know, you teach a man to fish and he'll, you know, feed himself for a lifetime. Yeah. Or, you know, keep giving them a fish and they just never learn to do anything. And it was just observing that and going, you know, you're doing the task for them. You're doing the task for them. Repeated, repeated. No one's learning anything here. And you're just making yourself busy when you're a busy fool. You're not yeah. actually being productive so yeah i totally resonate with that and for you did you put together a plan of how you were going to transition out of the army or did the army make a plan for you no. you, know? <laughs> so I think, uh, you know most people that know me were like you know it's funny because I'm, I'm tale of two cities right tale of two humans you know I'm very brash. I can be very aggressive. And so they're like, oh yeah, you were definitely in the military. But then there's a lot of me that, you know, hates bureaucracy and, you know, cut, you know, anybody, time anybody wants to do anything, they'll come to me because I'll cut through the red tape and make a decision. So like, you know, I, we run a very flat organization where we empower leaders. And I think that's a product of the war, you know, I fought, you know, when we went to Iraq and Afghanistan, it was nobody had ever done it before. So it wasn't like we could get mentored by, you know, the colonels who were in Desert Storm or the people who spent a decade in the military in peacetime. Like there was no playbook. We were training to fight against Russia and China. You know, nobody had really thought about, you saw a brief kind of, you know, battle mode issue, but there really wasn't a doctrine or a playbook for going into these cities or going into the mountains and fighting these very asymmetric engagements. And you had to learn on the fly. And so you had to power and research source and trust very small units you had squads just you know we actually took a little bit of doctrine that the marines had used in vietnam where you basically kind of go outside the wire and you live with the people and you don't just keep leaving you know you stay there you see where people go at night see what people do because otherwise you're just driving in everyone sees you coming in or you're air inserting in everyone sees you come in they do what they want to do and you leave and they go back to doing something else whereas if you just you know live with them you know you really get to understand the people more and i think there was a natural entrepreneurial spirit to the military, ironically enough. It was, let's figure this out. Let's write our own playbook. And even when you go back, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I can say it now because I'm not in the military anymore. You know, you'd go back into the talk, you know, it's our basically our operations center, and you'd have, you know, full bird colonels and generals, you know, obviously playing a very important role as well, but telling us kind of what to do. And we kind of nod, smile, and then leave and go do whatever we wanted to do because we knew <laughs> what we needed to do. And it was very entrepreneurial. It was very, yeah, they want us to do that, but that's not going to work for these reasons or it's going to piss off these villagers or, you know, so you kind of had to make it up on your own. And it's funny, you were, you, were, you said this right before we started this chapter of the conversation about busy and effective. And I always say this to everyone, you know, just because you're busy doesn't mean you're productive. And just because you're productive doesn't mean you're effective. And really having that as a framework for everything I do now has helped me understand the impact I can have and what impact others can have that, that work with me or under me or above me even, but just really understanding, you know, commander's intent. What is your vision? What are you trying to do? Do we have the resources? Are you being, you know, guided in the right direction? Have I been clear? And that way you can get to that effective, not just busy. 
And I think, you know, we've learned that a lot over the last 20 years and, you know, not to get political, but, you know, my wife is Ukrainian and my kid will be, you know, half Ukrainian. And it's like, you know, you see this with what's going on with Russia. People in the West, not just the U.S., you know, U.K., U.S., you know, a lot of the people who have been involved in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years, we have an incredible competitive advantage that I hope we never have to use. Our military is so much more advanced than Russia and China. I don't think people fully appreciate it. Our military would run through Russia in a matter of months. It would have to be nuclear. And so it's like, that's why I'm glad, you know, we have this kind of natural, you know, let's not do this because it's not good for the world. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to the warfighter and what we've learned over the last 20 years, both fighting, you know, a battle, a direct force-on-force battle, but also the community aspect of it. We spent half our time handing out candy to kids, building hospitals, doing civil affairs, helping rebuild communities. And nobody wants to talk about it right now. When you go back into Iraq, now, it's an entirely different country. And they told us that when we first got there in 2003, they said, I remember this old sergeant major who had jumped into Grenada said, don't get discouraged. It will take an entire generation growing up free before anything changes. Mm. And so you now have kids in their 20s who have only known freedom in Iraq, and they're not going to give it up. And you go to you know Ramadi, you go to Mosul, it's relatively peaceful. And kids are going to college and, you know, I'm proud that we had a, a, you know, Afghanistan still a lot more that that's a totally different country, totally different culture, totally different understanding of of kind of the global influences that are at play there. But at least in Iraq, things are better. And we did that. And I think that's exciting for me because from an entrepreneurial journey, it's the same thing. You know, you're not going to get $10 million on day two. You know, you have to weather the storm. You have to persevere and you need to understand that these things take time. And so patience would be the other thing that I think service and serving in combat taught me. You may not see the benefits right away, but, you know, if you do the right things and you do them with a good heart, you know, more often than not, you'll succeed. It's a great point. Do you still have friends who uh, are in the military, Randall? Yes, I do. It's it's ironic now. So I graduated from West Point in 2002. And so my classmates are, you know, of the retiring age now. And our 20-year reunion is coming up in October. And I've never felt felt old until this year. (laughs) (laughs) They just finished. So at West Point, they do this thing called Beast Barracks. And it's like the first summer after high school, but before your freshman year in college. And they basically, you know, that's your boot camp for the entire summer. And they just finished or they're finishing up Beast for the current class, which will be what, the class of 2026. And I was thinking, me and my, my roommate from West Point, who was my, my best man at my wedding, we were like, you know, these kids weren't even born when we graduated. And I was like, oh, I'm real old now. <laughs> like, That's this crazy, is, isn't it? This is, this is going too fast. Well, that ages you. That ages you. That's like I was telling you before briefly, like a friend of mine just sent a message out saying that, you know, he's been the commanding officer of the commando uh training wing for the Royal Marines here in the UK and he's tasked with leading the delivery of the next generation of Royal Marines commandos and as part of that they do a 32-week training course which culminates in this test week where every recruit completes four arduous tests within a seven-day window the most famous of which is a 30-miler across you know this tough ground called Dartmoor Uh which I know here and then they get you know presented with their green berets and their commando flashes and welcomed into the commando family and 
my friend said, you know, he's been doing this with them, but he's 30 years older than they are as well. So I'm just like, you know, massive respect for doing that because that's got to be tough at any age, you know. Oh, it's so important though. I mean, and I'm so glad you, you mentioned that because it's just, you can do entire books and sessions on, you know, what's the difference between a leader and a manager. And we talk about that a lot in the military, just, you know, what works, what doesn't, you know, and I honestly think that humans can smell authenticity like dogs can smell fear. You know, there is just whether they say it to you or not is an entirely different subject. And they might have a lot of reasons you might be their boss. They might have a lot of reasons why they don't want to tell you you're being inauthentic. But people know you have this natural God-given gift, this inner compass that just kind of knows when something's off. You know when you should be scared. You know when you should run. You know when a relationship's probably not working. And, and you know when someone's being authentic. And that kind of I'm going to sweat with you. I'm going to bleed with you. I'm going to do this with you. And we're in it together. It's one of the most important distinctions between being a leader and being a manager. You know, it's that, you know, last person to step off the battlefield. It's follow me. Don't do something I wouldn't do. It's, you know, being able to go through that. I give, you know, your friend all the respect in the world. And, you know, it, he's got a great, great excuse. You know, hey, look, you know, I did this back in my day. I don't have to do this now. But choosing yeah. to do it, and, and we were we were talking before we started recording about running, having these little things where you have to have these moments of introspection where you kind of look at yourself and you think, I don't have to do this. And no one is going to judge me if I don't do this. But I'm going to judge myself and I'm going to know. And then choosing to do it anyways. Man, I tell you, like that, those moments, I try to find as many of them as possible. And, and for me, one of them, you know, now I'm not in the military anymore. One of them is running and it, I'm in Texas and it's, you know, 100 degrees outside. And I'm thinking, yeah, I could always run tomorrow or, you know, yeah. maybe I got this little ache in my knee. I probably shouldn't even run. I mean, it's not good for me to run. I should probably stay inside with the air conditioning and just maybe <laughs> rehab. And then eventually, you know, I run. And then afterwards, it's almost euphoric. And I'm sure there's endorphins yeah. and all these other things at work, but it's that accomplishing something that you didn't have to do that just makes you a better person. Do you know, and I had one of those moments yesterday because we'd been traveling all day. We'd just been away for 10 days, been traveling all day. And for us, this is like a heat wave in the UK. It's our second heat wave. It's like the hottest temperature recorded in the last 50 years that we've just oh, had wow. here. So it's, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, and it's crazy. But, you know, for you, you're used to those temperatures. So it's like 100, you know, it's like 90 <laughs> something degrees here. But, you know, I got back and, um, you know, training for the New York Marathon. It's like the last day of training for week five. So it's my long run. It's only, I say it's only, but it's, it's a 10K, it's six miles. But, you know, did I want to do it? I didn't want to do it. You know, and I thought about it. I thought about it. I left it and I left it and I left it, Randall. And it got to like 8.30 in the evening. I thought, if I'm ever going to do it, I need to do it now. I need to do it now. I'm up at six in the morning doing my swim in the sea. So I need to do it now. And I did it. And, you know, as you said, I don't need to tell you how I felt afterwards. I felt oh. fantastic. You know, you get nice. that euphoric moment. And, um, you know, it was just like no one's watching, but I'm watching. You're watching. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, now, now, I know you were training for the New York Marathon. Are you also thinking about doing maybe a triathlon as well or an Ironman? People tell me that that will be my next progression. So I did my first marathon on my own during lockdown just for something, you know, to do, to give myself a challenge. And then I trained for a marathon twice and they were both cancelled because of bloody COVID. So uh, now this is like, right, I, I need a target for this year and my friend can get me into New York because his company is sponsoring the event. So I'm like, brilliant, let's do New York. 
offered me London and I was like, no, I want to do one in the States. So it's a good time of year, I'm thinking, weather-wise, you know, as well. But yeah, have you done triathlons or Ironmans yourself then? Have you graduated to that? No, you know, the closest thing, you know, is, is obviously kind of, you know, just they're almost inherently built into the armed forces. You know, I had, it's funny, I remember hating it at the time, but it probably gave, I didn't love running. I've always been in shape. I've always worked out, but I didn't love running. And two things yeah. changed that for me. I wish the second one had happened first because it would have made my life a lot easier. But the first one happened, which made my life more difficult. And so going into, you, know, you want to go to a ranger school, you basically, you know, so for the army, you have to go through a series of kind of tests to make sure you can kind of hack it. And so for officers, you start doing that while you're at your basic course after graduating West Point. And the people training you are usually captains and, and they're teaching you about, you know, what it means to be an officer in your field of study and everything else. And, you know, then they have, for anybody who wants to kind of go through, you know, ranger school, you have to kind of go through selection first. And so it's, you know, three or four months of just kind of training and they're evaluating you. And I just happened to get the guy who was training for a marathon. And so I'm pretty sure he kind of phoned it in, but his version of training for us was tr him training for his marathon. So, well, you're just going to join me on training for my marathon marathon and you know i didn't know how to run very well so this will be a, a kind of an interesting analog to business i was very stubborn you know my birthday's in a couple days i'm a leo and i am very you know confident in my own abilities but i refuse to quit and i've always been like that and so i kind of look at things like well if anybody has ever done it before then i too can do it before i always had this appreciation for just yeah. the human capacity to achieve amazing things and why not me and so I would doggedly run, you know, until I would drop, you know, it's that old Will Smith quote, you know, if we get on a treadmill, you're getting off or I'm going to die. And I've always kind of had that mentality. So, you know, shit, I'm not a good runner. So shin splints, I feel like I probably busted a hip, but I'm just like plogging away running. And, you know, I got pretty good endurance, but I still felt like I wasn't a good runner. When I say good runner, I don't think mechanically. I'm a bigger guy. I've always weightlifted, but I'm a very, I've always done martial arts. I've always been very functional, but I don't have a runner's build. And so people would always be like, oh man, you know, you're not a runner. And so I would just plog along, but I would never quit. So I became a decent runner and just forced my way through it. It turned out to be probably the best possible training you could do for ranger school because it's, you know, 20 mile ruck marches with 150 pounds on your back. And it's just, wow. it's all about, you know, how strong are your shins, your ankles and your endurance and your will to win. After my second deployment, so being in Austin, you know, where the, you know, everyone loves Lance Armstrong and everybody loves, you know, various kind of, you know, whether it's triathlons, marathons or, or bicycling. And so I went to the shop and they had a treadmill set up and I was going to get some running shoes. Like I should keep this going. I should keep running. And this guy's like, you know, you're a runner. I was like, well, I don't know if I'm a runner, but like, I enjoy running. He's like you get shin splints. I'm like, yeah, you know, pretty often. He's like, I just keep powering through it. He's like, get on a treadmill. So he films me. He has his little camera set up behind the treadmill. He gets me to run on a treadmill for like five minutes and he gets me off. And he proceeds to tell me like the right shoe. He proceeds to teach me how to midfoot strike. He's like, for your build, every time you strike, you're hitting heel first, you're rocking forward. So effectively, you're taking all of your momentum and you're slamming your heel into the ground and you're bracing your momentum every time you run. That's why you're getting shin splints. But if you could think about never touching your heel to the ground and hitting like the ball, you know, right in the middle of your foot, you know, a decent arch, but not a big arch. We like hit midfoot strike and then think about your legs, like don't stride out, but just think of, you know, RPMs and doing like this. And so when you run and run faster, you just have more RPMs, but you never like stride out and hit your heel. 
it'll change all of the mechanics of the way you run. And like, it was evolutionary. I mean, it was yeah, all the pressure I was feeling in my shins transferred to my quads and my butt. Now I never get shin splints and I fell in love with running because now it's like, oh my God, I'm doing it the right way. And so I think mm. there was a, a really important lesson not to use running as the, you know, the proxy for this whole conversation, but <laughs> you can have all the passion in the world. You can have all the desire in the world, but if you don't have the right tools or the right approach, you can really hurt yourself. And so taking stock, understanding what you should do and how you should do it, and what are the proper resources in order to do it well, is a very important step, both in running and entrepreneurship, so that you can get the max output for whatever you're doing. Does that make sense? It does. And I, one of those light bulb moments then, because I've been getting heel pain and like Achilles pain. And do you know what? The first thing that hits the ground is my heel. Heel. I can literally if you feel it now, now. None of them. It looks like they're right out of the package. So they always get damaged up front. And I always try to replace my shoes every you know four to six months. Yeah. But the heels are pristine. So I run it out. Now, here's the thing I'll warn you. I feel a little silly. So when you run like this, you run a little bouncy and like a little, yeah, a little yeah. and so my arms kind of like, so you're not running, striding out like this. You're kind of running like this and you're just running okay. faster and faster and faster by doing, you know, more steps. So it's a lot of mm. little steps, but it'll change your appreciation for running. I'm telling you, it is transformational. Interesting. Well, I'm going to research that and give it a try. <laughs> Midfoot striking. Midfoot strike. I like it. And look, talk about striking out. See what I did there. Sorry to interrupt you listening to this podcast, but I wanted to bring to your attention something that I've personally been using for the last couple of months that helps me massively. So I know it can be tricky to feed yourself nutritious meals and snacks whilst on the go without breaking the bank. Many of us end up skipping meals or suppressing our hunger with coffees and sugary snacks instead of fueling ourselves to keep going throughout the day. Pulse Up specially formulated their plant-based superfood meals and snacks in powder form so you can get all the nutrition you need to stay energized on the go. Providing an optimally complete meal in less than the time it takes to make a coffee, each wholesome meal contains 31 grams of protein, 20% of your recommended daily intake of vitamins, as well as being cruelty-free and plant-based. So it ticks a lot of boxes for me, for my values, and the values that I know you as listeners have as well. And at £1.80 per meal serving or 90p a snack serving, Pulse Up is the perfect alternative to sugary drinks or bars that have low nutritional value and cost double the amount. Committed to sustainability, Pulse Up deliver their meals in plastic-free, recyclable containers and use compostable packaging where possible to reduce harm on the environment. The brand looks super cool too, I have to say. And not only does Wholesome taste great in both their chocolate and vanilla flavors, I've got both, I like both, but the ingredients are also responsibly sourced and the recipes are designed carefully to prevent food waste. So whilst we're all becoming busier, it's important to keep your focus on wellness and nourishing your body from the inside out. Wholesome meals are available on wholesome.com cost as little as £1.80 a shake. So if you go to wholesup.com, that's W-H-O-L-E-S-U-P-P.com and enter the code WHOLESUP15, that's capital W-H-O-L-E-S-U-P-P-1-5, you will save 15% on your order. That's wholesup.com. Thanks for listening. Back to the podcast. Going, going straight from the army um, to business school to venture capital, was that the next phase of your life? 
Yeah. You know, so I think a lot of people, I think, were, again, when I do something, I go all in, even if I don't necessarily want to be there, it's, if it's got my name on it and it's part of my legacy. And I don't mean legacy, like a Hollywood star. I mean, just, you know, your reputation and your credibility and the impact you leave on this earth is your personal legacy. I'm not going to half-ass something. I refuse it. I refuse to half-ass something. And so a lot of people thought I was going to be career military. And a lot of people were kind of shocked. And I didn't tell people I was getting out to the very last minute. And I was stop-loss when I was supposed to get out. So they got an extra year out of me. So about six years, I was still in Iraq, uh, you know, whenever I was supposed to get out. And so had an extra year kind of tacked on. And I started telling, you know, our brigade commander that, you know, I was going to get out. And he was shocked. Because I was going to give my all up until, you know, the moment I no longer wore the uniform. And I think that's important. If you commit to do something, you should be all in until you are all out. Now, when I got out, though, the reason why I got out is I wanted more control. Like, you know, as much control as I could have, you know, especially being deployed most of my active service, it still was the Army. You know, they're going to let you have too much control. It's still have to have a boss. And so I think the army will teach you, you are one of two types of people. You either love to have a boss or you hate to have a boss. And for me, it was the latter. And it really set me off on this idea of, well, you know, who doesn't have bosses, entrepreneurs. And I'd already been doing all of this stuff that was kind of entrepreneurial in the army. How can I be the best possible entrepreneur I can be now? That's going to be my next journey. So I'm going to take all these courses that I can take while I'm getting my business degree at McCombs here in Austin. But I also want to like, I kind of viewed that as just more school. I wanted experiential learning. Like, so I made a list of a hundred people in town that I wanted to meet. So I got out of the army, active duty. I still did some training for the National Guard for a year. For the most part, I was done in January and I didn't start grad school until August. And so everyone's like, oh, wow, eight months off. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to go travel the world? I'm like, no, I'm going to get to work. And I got, you know, I, I need, I need to play catch up. You know, my buddies are doing billion dollar deals on, you know, Wall Street right now. And what am, what am I doing? I've been, you know, in the sand, you know, kicking down doors. So let's get to work. So I made a list of 100 people that I wanted to meet. Told them, look, I don't need anything. I don't want a job. I just want to meet you, hear your story. I want to learn about what made you successful. I'm going to school in the fall, so you know this isn't kind of a bait and switch. You know, at the end of the day, probably 40, 50 percent never responded. You know, 20 percent, you know responded but kind of blew me off and then you know a good you know 30 percent said all right let's figure out a time to meet and so you know i set about meeting those people and one of them was admiral inman and that's kind of how i first met him and then another one you know, so i basically told him that's about that time was probably now may and so i had blown through about half of my time off now and i've just been trying to network 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 and you know one of the things that kind of began to hit me is I didn't feel like all these other amazing entrepreneurs. I didn't have some great blue ocean idea that I thought was going to change the world. I was like, bummer, but okay, I can't cry over spilled milk. Maybe it'll come to me. What do I do in the meantime? Well, being from the army, know your enemy. I knew enough about entrepreneurship that they usually raised money from VCs. So I was like, well, I'll network my way into the VC side of things so that I can study entrepreneurship from the other side of the table. And then when I'm an entrepreneur, I'll be better prepared to know all the tricks, you know, all the little things. Yeah. So I kind of started, you know, so I I convinced Admiral Inman to, hey, you know, will you let me kind of be a a fly on the wall? He had a group called Inman Ventures, then Jeff and Orr Ventures, and then was starting a group called Limestone Ventures. Again, an early investor in Dell and Oracle. It was kind of an angel, but more organized like a traditional VC. And so this is what I think I probably really started learning 
the role initiative and accountability could play both for your career, but just your reputation. And so I said, listen, let me be a fly on the wall. Let me see if I can help where I can. And one of the first things he's like, you know, and I think he felt like he was doing me a favor. He's like, sure. It's him and his son, Tom Inman, another great guy here in Austin. And he said, all right, you know what? Why don't you come to a couple of meetings, you know, check it out, you know, don't break anything. Don't talk too loud. You know, and, and I'll make coffee, you know? So I had no ego. I was like, I'll do whatever. So I, you know, I sat in there and I noticed, and any entrepreneur watching this notices this, VCs don't really take notes. They just sit there and half the time they're on their phone during the pitch. <laughs> they're like, uh -huh. yep. Uh-huh. What? Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. Isn't Google doing that? Uh-huh. Okay. And so that, that's pretty much what it looks like to pitch to a VC. And I thought, man, there's all this great information going on. And then there's all this like, you know, market sizing, revenue, trajectory, the team, you know, all of the comp competitors. I was like, I know they're not getting all. This. So I started just taking like copious notes and I can write fast and I'm pretty, you know, OCD and anal when it comes to note taking. And so I then started Googling things like, you know, templates for due diligence, templates for deal reviews and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I ended up without anybody asking me to do it without, you know, them knowing I was doing it. I started creating a template to review every single deal and to house all the notes. And I created this like folder of all the deals they did. So after like 10 or 15 of these, I kind of came in and said, Hey, I just wanted to see if I'm on the right track. This is what I've been doing. So that you have a, you know, digital and paper record of all the deals you see, the people you meet, the markets, all of that. And they were like, what in the world? Like, <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> like, you know, and, and it was, they'd never done it before. They'd never yeah. seen it before. And it was just really just, you know, being accountable to my position there, I might as well try to add some value. And so they obviously, you know, were pretty stoked about that. And they let me kind of get more involved at that point. So I led with value rather than asking for a favor, asking for something else, you know, they already let me in the door. Now I want to add value. And that yeah. kind of led my career ever since then, because the very next person I met was a guy named Jamie Rhodes, who had started the Central Texas Angel Network. I ended up taking over as executive director for that about a month or two after this time spent with Admiral Inman, right as I was starting my business school, you know, my first semester. And basically they were looking for a new executive director. I had attended a few meetings, noticed the exact same problem. Now this is all angel investors. And so I did the exact same thing. I built an entire, what we call an army standard operating procedure, yeah. an organizational document about how to run an angel network and asked them, you know, hey, who are you looking for to hire as the next executive director? And they basically profiled Elon Musk. And I was like, I hate to break it to you. Elon Musk is not going to run your angel network. I mean, this is glorified secretarial work. And so like, I'll tell you what, I'll do it. And I'll do it for free because I'm about to go to school. You just need someone with a military background to create organizational discipline. I'll do that. And so I did it and they bought it. And my dad used to always say, you never get what you don't ask for. So I asked for it and I got it. And I grew that to be the most active angel network in the country after about four years. So that's what led me into venture capital. We ended up starting a venture capital firm focused only on healthcare. Did that for a decade. And then ironically, I actually, when I was still doing angel investing, helped with the first one and a half million dollars to start Funware back in 2009. And then, you know, almost 10 years later, a little less than 10 years later, led around for about $3 million into the last private round before we went public back in 2018 and then joined full time as COO shortly thereafter. And so it's weird how life kind of works sometimes. And so, you know, serendipity, I guess you could say. Yeah, because interesting what you were saying there, but I love that that you went into the venture capital world because you didn't have any, you know, light bulb moments then to start your own business. But, you know, life comes full circle. And now 
and I could see, you know, I was going to ask you before, you know, the T-shirt you're wearing for those who are watching compared to listening, you know, you get fun tokens. So tell me a little bit about that and about where you see the opportunities right now with blockchain, for example, and what Funware and, and Funcoin are doing. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating so, space. Yeah, I don't know enough, enough about it. I'm trying to educate myself, but. Yeah, no, and, and I, I told, you know, for all those listening, I told Alex before, I didn't want this to be a commercial, but, you know, you can't, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you know, this is, it would have taken a special company for me to stop being a venture capitalist and Funware is it right. because of the impact it could possibly have. You know, when we first started the company in 2009, I helped lead the first seed round. It was a simple hypothesis. You know, how do we create large mobile ecosystems for brands that are looking to transition from web to mobile? And in 2009, nobody was on mobile. It, less than 3% of internet content was consumed on mobile. So we helped usher in the era of mobile. We built the first NFL app. We built the first NASCAR app. Did you? We, yeah, yeah, we all at Fox Media Group. We did all their mobile applications. We set wow. live streaming records for a live event at the Sochi Olympics. We did the presidential election in the U.S. in 2020. We've done hotels, hospitals, stadiums, you name it. We have more mobile experience than anyone on the planet. And we have it at the highest level. And so what we've done more recently is taken all of that and try to shift it into what we call digital transformation. But really, it's a fancy mm -hmm. word for what I like to call contextual engagement. You know, I want to get the right information to the right person on the right screen at the right time in the right place, not only make their lives better, but to help brands be more profitable and productive. So when you think about that, you know, we live in a mobile first world and how you use this to engage people is going to totally be reimagined going forward. Right now, people what binge watch Netflix. They fight with people on social media about mass mandates. That's not what we do. We turn this into a mobile concierge. So we just launched at Atlantis down in the Bahamas. If anybody ever goes to go down there, it's an amazing property. One of the biggest luxury resorts in the world, 140 acres. It's an island in and of itself. So they've licensed our mobile software to deliver basically a smart hospitality solution. And so, you know, now you can do, you know, you'll eventually be able to do contactless check-in, mobile concierge, you know, probably even integrate the casino. You can also book anything anywhere. You can find your way around the property, which is huge for us. We have something called location-based services software. Effectively, what that means is we can triangulate and identify a mobile device indoors the same way satellites and GPS can do that outdoors. And we wow. have some of the best software in the world. So we beat Google for Kaiser Permanente's business. We beat four other vendors to do on a cruise ship. And it's all about kind of creating this location network inside of a building so that you can better engage someone. So that real-time blue dot, just like we see outside with Waze or Uber or Lyft, yeah. we do that indoors. And that's going to be the future of how brands try to engage you. This idea of contextual engagement, like Alex, I see that you're walking past this location. I want to engage you in that moment with maybe a commercial to convince you to buy something or do something versus mm -hmm. the old way of advertising was always, let me brainwash customers. Let me just yeah, yeah. show you my brand anywhere you mm -hmm. can find, billboards, banner ads. And then eventually when you make a purchase decision, I hope that you'll remember me. Those days are gone. We talk a lot about this, the role like podcasts will play, everything that you do around influencer marketing. That's how people buy today. So Atlantis, you know, they made $50,000 through our app the first week. They made over half a million dollars within a couple months. And that's just because we live in an on-demand world that has limited attention span. So we want what we want and we want it now. And if you don't catch us in that moment, 
you may never catch us again. And so we use this to basically bridge that gap between a brand and a consumer to make that engagement contextual. And then with like fun token, we're basically incentivizing that engagement. Like if I know yeah. that engaging you is valuable to me as a brand, I might be willing to incentivize you to engage with me. And so blockchain represents this really awesome opportunity to do micro transactions at scale in an autonomous fashion. But every time you do that, you're generating data. And so as yeah. we know, data is now the most valuable asset on the planet. That data is yours. Every time anybody buys it or uses it, you should get compensated for it. And it doesn't happen today. Right now, Facebook, Google, credit agencies, they farm you and they don't care what you have to say about it. And they sell your data without any consideration or compensation for consumers. So we're changing that with FunCoin. We're going to use our existing mobile software to better engage you. We're going to use Fun Token to incentivize you to engage with the brand that you care about. And then as we generate all of this data, we're going to only compensate when that data is ever sold. That's fascinating. So as you say, at the moment, if somebody takes your data, be that Meta, Google, whomever it is, you get nothing for it, but you're looking to incentivize people and it will be a coin on the blockchain yep. that people can then exchange. Ah, wow. Okay. Yeah, so we, we have two. So we're the first publicly traded company to ever do this, which is exciting. You know, again, you got to be, you know, I've always kind of thought that's what starts that entrepreneurial journey for most people. It's this desire to see the world for what it could be, not the way it is. And I think then to have the perseverance to actually do something about it, that's when you know you're an entrepreneur. And so for us, you know, I, I look around and I think, you know, I do feel disconnected from brands. Like, you know, people love to buy, they just hate to be sold. But how do you sift through all the noise? I think we're gonna move away from an era of brands just trying, trying to drive awareness. And we're gonna move towards an era where brands are trying to drive engagement. And then that engagement now has a much more interesting value proposition. So one of our biggest industries, believe it or not, is actually healthcare. So it's about mm -hmm. you know 30% of our business, about 50% of our pipeline. It's tech enabling hospitals. It's so important for them to tech enable real world journeys, to tech enable the continuum of care. They don't even call it a mobile app. They call it a digital front door. Imagine that mm -hmm. digital front door, That's digital good. front door, bill pay, electronic medical records, finding your way around these massive medical campuses. It's a $150 billion a year problem, people being late to their doctor's appointments or missing them all together. $150 billion. That's a stupid problem to have. And the yeah. problem is like people don't understand like when their appointment is, or even if they know they're going to try to go there, Google gets you to the address, but then what do you do? Our software air traffic controls the entire patient journey and make sure, you know, when you get there, don't park in this garage because it's being, you know, newly renovated or they're painting the stripes, park in this garage and park on a second you know floor because there's an overhead sky bridge. And if you have limited mobility, we'll have a wheelchair waiting for you, or if you're visually impaired, we'll have somebody guide you to where you need to go. All all of that should just happen. Our system enables that to happen, but we can also incentivize you. You know, let's get you there on time. If we're spending $150 billion effectively in cost in this country, would you give somebody a hundred bucks to show up on time? Yeah. Maybe. 
Yeah, and yeah. now you're driving patient satisfaction as well, which is directly correlated to your reimbursement rates. So there's all these opportunities to create this virtuous ecosystem when you can actually let brands and consumers engage directly. And that's what Bitcoin did. Think about it. You know, Bitcoin proved that you didn't need a bank in the middle and that two people could transact value in a trustless yep. system. Yeah. Brands aren't loyal to Facebook and Google or credit agencies. They're loyal to the consumer. That's who they care about. So mm -hmm. it's ripe for disruption. You just got to introduce a new model. And our model is the ability to take this mobile architecture in a mobile first world that's quickly becoming mobile only, layer in blockchain to enable brands and consumers to finally interact directly, and it's going to change the game. And there's also, from the outside looking in, you've got that personalization element as well. Absolutely. That might be somewhat, some of the most important. And that's why, where I kind of say context is who are you? Where are you? What's important to you right now? Because at Atlantis, we talked about this exactly, this exact thing. You know, Atlantis, if no one's ever been there, you know, again, it's 140 acres, five distinct properties, got a water park, a casino, aquarium, all sorts of things for kids and adults. And so you have these situations, they didn't even think they would make as much money as they have through their app. Oh. But what they didn't realize is how people buy now. So if you're walking through the water park and you're trying to get to a restaurant to feed your kids who are probably 10 minutes from becoming maniacs and you're passing by the stingray encounter and you see a sign and you think that would be fun and you know maybe even the kids see the sign like that would be fun but man you're thinking i gotta feed these little monsters in the next 10 minutes and you just say okay i'll do that later i'll come back to it now you go to try to like feed them and it's a 50 minute wait Kids are freaking out. And by the time that's all said and done, you just want to go take a nap. You've forgotten about the stingray. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you pass that same stingray encounter with our software now, and your phone beeps, and it says, check out this video of this amazing encounter for kids and stingrays, and you watch a video, and you have that Amazon Live Buy Now button, and you can book in that moment while you're in state, now that's how people think. They want to buy what they want to buy when they want to buy it. And you need to be yeah. able to enable that. So our platform enables that kind of contextual engagement, but also that how do you make it real and actionable? And so I think it's really going to be table stakes going forward as people think about it. So, you know, our other big, you know, hospitality, healthcare, um, luxury residential, and then now workplace too. We just did our largest a multi-million dollar deployment for a large corporation where we tech enabled the entire office experience, which is really cool. Wow. I mean, I find it I find it fascinating, but I'm aware I've already taken up more of your time than I should have done. So I'm, I'm going to finish with one last question, Randall, if that's cool. And you mentioned that you've just gotten married and congratulations and that you have got your first child on the way as well. So congratulations again. So it might be an easy one for you to answer, but where does your motivation come from then? It's funny, I'm, uh, you know, you teed that up so well for such a really good, like heartfelt answer. But, you know, I think I'm not going to give that answer because I feel like it's almost expected. <laughs> you know, I love my family. I love my wife. I love my unborn child. You know, I, I want to do everything for them. I really think and maybe this gets into a little bit about I always say people should really dive in. And you'll see me talk a lot in kind of, you know, these yin and yang. So, you know, leader, manager, joy, happiness. And I think motivation is kind of different between motivation and kind of conviction. You know, motivation, you can watch a really cool video on YouTube and get really motivated in that moment, but that wanes. Mm. You can be really happy, but that wanes. You can be a manager and lose your job and be unemployed. You will always be a leader if you're a leader. You will always have joy if you have joy. 
something internal. You know, your motivation, you can lose that. Trust me, I mean, you know, runners know this. You can lose motivation real quickly. It's not so much motivation, it's conviction. And it's this conviction to be the best version of myself. And I think that has to be a more personal journey if you want it to last, if you want it to persist. Because I'm not going to unload all my problems on my kid. I'm not going to unload them on my wife. I'm going to live a lot of this journey wrestling with myself and my own commitment and my own dedication and my own weaknesses and my own flaws, and my own insecurities. And something about that has to be overridden. And I think conviction overrides that, not motivation. Like motivation is rah, 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 let's go. Inspiration yeah. is I want to be like you. But conviction is when the chips are down and all is lost and you could stop you keep going. And so for me, that conviction is I have been given opportunities that maybe a lot of people haven't. I've made some opportunities based on, you know, characters or skills that I've been blessed to have. And if I don't make the most of that, then, you know, was it all a waste? And whether you believe in God or evolution or something else, you're letting something down, even if it's just yourself. And so I've always kind of set out to never let myself down or let all of the people who believed in me down. And I think it's important for anyone to understand that's still listening this long into it. And I apologize because I think we could talk forever. I know. Humans are the only life form who will live below their potential. Humans are the only life form that will live below their potential. A tree will be the best tree it can be. A lion will be the best lion it can be. A fish will be the best fish it can be. Only humans live below their potential. And I always thought that's so sad. Yeah, and I don't want to do that because I don't want to live with regret. Wow, that's the, the, honestly, I could talk to you for hours, but that's a great place to leave a thought in people's minds as to are they living their life to its fullest? Are they being the best versions of themselves they can be? And, you know, can they harness that potential and, you know, have that conviction? So for that, Randall Crowder, I thank you very much indeed. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. You have a great day. You too. Thank you. And before I go, Randall, if people want to connect with you personally, what's the easiest way people can do that, my friend? Yeah, easy. So I'm at Randall Crowder on most things. Instagram, you know, LinkedIn, Randall Crowder, same thing. Uh, you want to learn more about Funware, funware.com. Funware is with a PH. Funtoken.com, again, PH, funcoin.com. And you can download Fun Wallet and actually kind of start learning about our digital asset ecosystem, both on iOS and Android. I would say Randall Crowder on Twitter as well, but I can't remember my password. And so until I do, it's Crowder official. So both of those are mine. I just can't remember what, I had Twitter a long time ago. And so anyways, Crowder official on Twitter, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from people. Love to be helpful any way I can. Thank you so much. If I can ever do anything for you, Alex, please just let me know. Likewise, likewise, really enjoyed that. I am super excited to announce that this podcast is brought to you by Wholesup Smart Food, complete, sustainable, plant-based food, shaking up your nutrition and improving your gut health, recovery, immunity, and energy. Go to wholesup.com and enter the code WHOLESUP15 to save 15% on your order. That's WHOLESUP15, all capitals, 15 to save 15% on your order. If you found value in this free podcast, all I ask is that you tell somebody else about it. You don't have to leave a review or write a post on social tagging me in the screw it, just do it hashtag. But if you do, I promise to give you a shout out on a future episode and you have my eternal thanks. 
I'm at Alex Chisnell on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook, plus at Alexander Chisnell on Instagram. Alongside the Screw It Just Do It Facebook page, this houses the Screw It Just Do It community and has the most up-to-date information on all things Screw It Just Do It, including all of our live events. I love hearing from you. If you either message me on LinkedIn or email alex at screwitjustdoit.org, I promise to reply. Just give me a little time. 